Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions that you may have about your practice. And your life, about Buddhism, and how it relates to the challenges you face. So if you have any questions, you can post them in the chat at any time. We'll spend the first 15 minutes, as usual, preparing. So asking questions, letting people have the time to tune in and ask their questions, to give our volunteers a chance to organize the questions, and as usual, to give us all a chance to prepare, clear our minds, cultivate clarity, presence, mindfulness. So after you've asked your question, just spend the first 15 minutes practicing mindfulness. And we'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin to answer the questions.
Okay, so 15 minutes are up. I'll now begin to answer the questions. So if you have questions still, you're welcome to continue to post them in the chat. I'd ask that chat be reserved for questions only from here on. Anything else will just be removed. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. What meditation techniques do you recommend? So if you're new to our community, welcome. We are a meditation community in the tradition of Ajahn Tong Sirimangalo from Thailand, who was my teacher and preceptor. And he he was taught in the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw, so we consider ourselves a part of that tradition. We have a booklet on how to meditate that we use as a basic guide for an introduction to meditation. It's at our website, which is at the bottom of the screen. So I'd recommend you take a look at that booklet, and that is the practice that we recommend. Once you've read the booklet, you can check out our courses. We have an online, an at-home meditation course that you can take up. We have residential courses for people who have done the at-home course. And it's all free of charge, so feel free to look into that. I have a harder time to remember to note and be mindful when I'm not doing my sit-walk practice while I'm moving around my daily activities. Do you have a recommendation on how to come back to the noting? We lost you there, Chris. Hello? Am I losing my internet, or...? It appears the Venerable doesn't hear me. No, I can't make it out. Bante, do you hear me? Yeah. Okay, let me ask the question once more. I have a harder time to remember to note and be mindful when I'm not doing my sit-walk practice while I'm moving around my daily activities. Do you have a recommendation on how to come back to the noting? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's different things I can say to this. There are external factors, the way you live your life. Obviously, if you're partying, breaking the precept, the, the five precepts um, heavily into entertainment or um, distraction, heavily into work, if your work is highly stressful and that sort of thing. There's lots of things that uh, socializing that, that, that will affect your capacity to be present, things that drag you into the past or the future. And it's not shameful that that's the case. Sometimes in our lives we have commitments that take us away from the meditative state. And you just have to acknowledge that uh, having suitable um, associations, good friends, 
know, people who are spiritual, people who are practicing meditation, associating with people, associating with Buddhist practitioners, that sort of thing, can be very helpful. Uh, your formal practice helps a lot. So doing daily practice in the morning and the evening. Uh, of course, doing intensive practice would make it a lot easier. So finding time to take a, a, a break from life and go off to a meditation center and do intensive practice. As far as in the moment, though, it's useful to appreciate how out of control reality is, how it's not a um, it's not a switch you can just turn on or turn off. Reality is not under your control. It's not you. It's not yours. You can't just decide to be mindful. And part of the practice. Part of the growth in the practice is the realization, the gradual appreciation of how life is not under your control and freeing yourself from the stress of needing to or, or expecting to be able to control your mind. So noticing when your mind is, has been distracted is more valuable than trying to or expecting to be able to keep your mind present at all times the 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 practice the way the practice goes is as a gradual uh, increase in your capacity to be present rather than a struggle to always keep your mind mindful at all times so you'll you'll gradually get better as as you're mind settles down as you let go of many of the things that distract you. And begin to realize that, you know, the mind is just not under your control. There seems to be a fine line between ignorance and trying to attain non-perception during meditation. How can I better tell the difference? That's an oddly worded question. Ignorance and trying to do X, Y, or Z are, are always going to... Ignorance is nothing like that second thing you're talking about. So there's no fine line between them. They're just two cat different categories of things. Um... How could I understand why you would think there would be a fine line between these two things? I mean, I, let me just go through it. The ignorance is the lack of of knowledge. I mean, literally, uh, in Buddhism, it relates to lack of knowledge of the four noble truths, the lack of, let's say, familiarity with the nature of reality. Specifically, um, that lack of familiarity, which causes you to uh, hurt yourself, to 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 make mistakes. And uh, specific mistakes, mistakes to to engage in um, mental activity that is harmful to yourself and to other people, that is against your best interest, that is wrong, let's say, because we can call that ignorance, that, that's the clearest way to understand ignorance. You wouldn't do something wrong if you didn't have ignorance, right? So the, the important quality of, of, of knowledge or wisdom 
is that whatever we might understand to be wrong no longer happens. It just can't happen because you know it's wrong. You you understand that that is a bad way to behave. That's what ignorance is. And so mindfulness is for the purpose of cultivating wisdom and understanding which counteract which counteracts or is, is the opposite of ignorance. It dispels ignorance immediately. Once you have familiarity, the ignorance is just gone. Um, now, ignorance is, if we look at your question, ignorance could be a reason for trying to do things because you might try to do things that are wrong. And by wrong, it's just simply against your best interest, uh, that which causes you to be to be more harmful to yourself and to others. So trying to attain... I mean, a funny thing about trying is that it's not actually a reality. Trying is not uh, real. Trying is a description that you might give to some activity. You You might describe what you're doing as trying, like if someone is bench pressing and practicing bench press they might say i'm trying to be able to bench press uh, however many kilograms or pounds but the activity is 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 repetition of practice so you might describe meditation that way you might say i'm practicing in this way because i'm trying to attain non-perception uh, that would be some practice. Now, our practice is not for the purpose of attaining non-perception. The reason why you would practice in that way is because you want to attain non-perception, like you would bench press lots of weights because you want to um, be able to bench press a certain amount. But uh, mindfulness is not for the purpose of attaining non-perception. And if that's what you want to attain, it would be important that you note that wanting because it would be out of ignorance that you want to, and therefore you could say it would be out of ignorance that you want to, or that you try to attain non-perception. That has nothing to do with uh, mindfulness practice. But um, one other thing I will say, uh, questions regarding ignorance, it's not something you can understand because it's the opposite of understanding. You'll never come to understand ignorance. Your understanding will just make you say, well, my ignorance is gone. Why? Because I have understanding. It's like when the light is there, you say, wow, where did the darkness go? When I sit and focus on my breath during noting meditation, I sometimes experience strong feelings of joy, lightness, and expansive consciousness. I often note using these labels, is that right? Yes, that's great. Uh, expansive consciousness, yeah, that's fine. Um, you just want to be careful to not start to apply meaning to it. Like expansive consciousness is probably some sort of feeling you get, like a feeling of calm or or, or peace or that sort of thing. Uh, try to pinpoint what exactly you mean by that term, expansive consciousness. It's not terrible, but uh, you, you might be able to be a little more accurate there. You would also want to note liking, because liking is, an, is a common hindrance that's associated with these states. Not always, of course, they can occur without it, but it is common and it's a danger in the beginning when good things, positive states happen, there's often a liking, which is a hindrance and a problem. What is the difference between being content and mindful and actual meditation? 
why not just be meditative throughout the day? Well, they're just words is the problem. Um, so on the face of it, if you were being content, I mean, you wouldn't even have to include the word mindful because if you're truly, truly, truly content and if you really understand the profound meaning of that word, you wouldn't need anything else. It would mean you're a person who has no attachments, no wants, no needs, no aversions, no reactions whatsoever. It would mean you'd be enlightened. So there's nothing wrong with just being content. And then if you add mindful in there, it's even better because it's it's implied because the only way you could be so content is if you had mindfulness constantly. The problem is they're just words. And it's much more common, I would say, for people to claim to be content and claim to be mindful without really and truly, um, well, without accuracy and and clarity and without actually uh, being content or mindful because they're just words and it's easy to call your state being content and being mindful without actually having the clarity and depth to see discontent, moments of discontent, moments of ignorance. Uh, it's a lot easier to be momentarily content when things are good, when life is good, when all is well, when you're not challenged. It's much harder to see uh, your potential for being discontent. Discontent is much more likely when you're challenged, which is why we do intense. I mean, it's, it's a big, good reason for why we do intensive meditation is to challenge us ourselves. Uh, to to make it more challenging and and more um, confrontational, so we'll do that. We do simple practices, walking back and forth and sitting, because it's very hard to be content if you have the potential to be discontent. It's very hard to be content just walking back and forth unless you are truly free from craving, free from aversion, and and free from delusion. So, again, not, not really any difference. It's just a matter of accuracy, whether it's actually true. And intensive practice tends to show you uh, how true it is. What advice would you give to someone who tries to escape reality a lot? Well, we want to be a little more accurate there. What exactly are we talking about? What exactly is this referring to? There's often aversion to experiences. I mean, I would I would just generally advise them to observe their moment-to-moment -moment experiences and try to appreciate and understand what exactly they're they're talking about. What exactly is happening? when they say that they're they're trying to escape reality so there might be aversion for some people it's fear trauma um, stress for other people it's actually the opposite it's desire craving so they really like daydreaming or fantasizing and so they cling to those but all of these are moments of experience they're not what you might say again this trying it's the same idea trying isn't real what's actually you have to describe what's actually happening that you're 
you're describing as trying to escape reality, what is actually moment moment by moment what is going on, and it will generally be aversion or 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 desire, and the uh, ignorance allows that to continue. So as you look closer, you start to see that there's stress involved and and um, bad. There's habits being formed that will lead to uh, uh, dependency. Dependency is such an important word. It really describes the problem with craving and clinging and, and, and attachment because you become dependent. And the Buddha talked very clearly about being independent. Anisito javiharati. Natchakinchi loke upadhyati. Not clinging to anything in the world. Because then it doesn't matter what happens, it doesn't matter what you lose, what you gain how things change you are unaffected by the vicissitudes of life unshaken i notice that when seeing my mind becomes uncomfortable with the flowing out oh, i lost you again i don't know if this is at your end or my end but i can't make out what you're saying Ponte, do you hear me now? Yes. Okay. I'll ask again. I notice that when seeing, my mind becomes uncomfortable with the flowing out and sense of a lack of boundedness. The seeing can just go on and on without a single object. It seems the appropriate response is to note discomfort or uneasy. Do you have any way to help me with seeing being just seeing? Well, seeing is just seeing, but discomfort is discomfort, and it's not. It's not the idea is not to uh, ignore anything else that might exist. The idea is to see seeing as seeing, discomfort as discomfort, or uneasiness as as uneasiness. So there's not a problem there. Your mind becomes uncomfortable. That's a statement of fact. That's great. It's great that you're seeing that. That's an important part of the practice. And you'll see these habits. Why does your mind have this habit of... Well, the why isn't so important, but it's interesting that your mind becomes uncomfortable. There's no real reason for that to be true. Um, it's, it's a habit. It's a bad habit, you might say, because there's no reason to be uncomfortable with, with anything. There can also be an um, interpretation or a reaction that leads you to be uncomfortable, because as you say, there's this flowing out and sense of a lack of boundedness which i don't know that whatever that feeling is you might be afraid of it uh you might you might be afraid of what might come uh this is you know there's habits of trauma and and paranoia i mean just fear let's say maybe paranoia is too strong but there'll be fear uh, worry that sort of thing and you should note all that these are just habits our minds are complicated and every mind is different and what you're describing is how your mind works at this time. And when it works like that at this time, just see that as it is as well. Discomfort is is discomfort. See that as it is. Fear, worry, whatever it might be. Note that as well. How can we be mindful during the dying process? 
What happens if one succeeds in noting the foundations of mindfulness throughout the dying process, either partially or fully? Well, there's no special uh, advice, I don't think. Not, I mean, maybe some, but practically speaking, it's going to be the same. It's, it's going to be a question of whether you're prepared for it like everything else. If you get an argument someone, are you prepared mindfully for it? You know, have you have you cultivated mindfulness to the extent that you can successfully navigate a confrontation with another person, a uh, car accident, a natural disaster, a loss of a relative or a loss of wealth or or, or anything that you might a sickness, you know, are you able to confer, to to successfully navigate it? with mindfulness and death is no different not categorically different there are of course some unique challenges with death but they're not anything to be too concerned with if you are skilled in the practice of mindfulness you have to think of death as just another experience there's going to be seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling thinking and some of the experiences will be strange novel um, unexpected even but a big part of mindfulness is the capacity to deal with the unexpected, to be unshaken or, or not caught off guard by the unexpected, because you stop having expectations. You're, without expectations, it's not a question of things being unexpected, it's a question of, of what arises, and whatever arises, you cultivate mindfulness. When one does that, of course, as with everything, you successfully navigate the situation. Now, with death, it's more impactful, of course, to say the least, because it has a real uh, effect on, uh, a very profound effect on your future. It's going to, in many ways, dictate the parameters of your next life. So, when you're mindful, of course, those Parameters are generally positive, generally uh, based on clarity, based on understanding. So there'll be a lot less stress, a lot less knee-jerk reacting, a lot less reactivity, a lot less fear, anger, a lot less clinging and craving. You'll just be in a much better place to appreciate what's happening and to make good decisions, as with anything during your life. Death is no different. There are going to be opportunities to choose your your future and to uh, form the next life, at least mentally and psychologically. So your state of mind is going to be incredibly impactful. And if your state of mind is mindful, then you should be in a good position to successfully navigate death. How do you improve equanimity? While meditating, after some time, the pain causes loss of equanimity. Uh, well, we're m so you'd more focus not on something you don't have, equanimity, but you'd focus on what you do have that you call loss of equanimity. You haven't lost equanimity per se, you've gained partiality. 
So there, you've given rise to liking or disliking. Pain in this case, most likely there's a disliking. There can also be fear. There can be anger. There can be sadness. I mean, usually it's just basically disliking. You dislike the pain. So you haven't lost anything. You've gained something, something that is problematic. And the reason disliking is able to arise in the first place, again, is because of ignorance, because of a lack of clarity in your mind in regards to the pain and in regards to anger. So you want to be noting those, the disliking, you note disliking, disliking, and also note the pain. And as you gain better clarity, you'll see what the anger is doing to you, and you'll see the nature of the pain uh, as being innocuous, not having any value associated with it, not having any um, not having any quality that m makes it reasonable to react with anger towards. So, in other words, disliking the pain is is useless, harmful, unbeneficial. I've heard you mention before that if you are mindful, you only need six hours sleep. Can you provide more information about why that is? Well, mainly because stress makes you tired. Stress stresses your system, physically and mentally. And through mindfulness, you have less stress and therefore you need less sleep. To be honest, six hours is a lot, and a person who is truly mindful, like like in a very uh, deep, uh, deep uh, to, to a great degree, is very systematically mindful, um, con consistently mindful. Six hours is already too much. They're, they're not going to need six hours. And it's not a matter of choosing and deciding to to deprive yourself of sleep. It's that they would feel worse sleeping six hours than, say, four hours. And after four hours, they would feel uh, alert, uh, refreshed, because you need less refreshing. A person who is highly stressed, those a person who gets angry a lot, a person who is lustful, greedy, these things uh, all take their toll on the body and the mind. They all have an impact. And a person who is free from those on a moment-to-moment -moment basis is going to need a lot less sleep. It's the problem with studies, you know, because whenever you research sleep, you'll hear about these studies that show that people who go without sleep bad things happen to them. But who are those people? Are those people people who are stressed, normally, even normally stressed? Or are they people who are exceptional in terms of practicing mindfulness 10, 12, uh, or more hours a day? Now, if they did a study on medita meditators with the similar parameters, I think they would get some interesting research. And when if you do a study, even if you include those people, they're always going to be outliers. So you'll say statistics show that, right? And statistics don't show anything. Statistics are useless. Well, they're not useless, but all they can show is what the average person needs. And unless you're that average person, they don't tell you how much you need. You could need more than six, more than eight hours. 
if you're very, very stressed. How can a person be a renunciate without going into robes? Well, robes don't have anything to do with renouncing, except in the sense of renouncing uh, pretty clothes. So if you are uh, if you're caught up in the need for pretty clothes, nice clothes, fancy clothes, clothes in general, then putting on a, a simple robe would be a form of renunciation. But it's a fairly superficial one, of course. So it was a good question. It's a, it's a great question. But and it's and it's important to understand that renunciation doesn't really have much to do with wearing robes or being a monk. Renunciation means renouncing sensuality. You can also extend it to be renouncing anger and renouncing delusion. You can renounce your views, but it usually relates on a practical level to renouncing desire. So there are outward forms in terms of renouncing sensuality. You can renounce entertainment, renounce uh, romance and sexuality. Um, but ultimately it's going to mean renouncing based on renouncing ignorance. So it's not about what you choose to do or not do. It's about gaining the understanding and wisdom, the familiarity with reality that frees you from craving and also frees you from anger and, of course, delusion. Be a renunciate. Uh, that's uh, How do you be a renunciate? Well, you can wear white robes. Um, see, the thing about robes is, again, you're, you're, it's one of the many things that... that relates to renunciation because you're renouncing um, renouncing the fancy clothes, pants, pants, shirts, so on, underwear. Um, but there's you know there's there's the basics of outward forms of renunciation like renouncing eating, beyond what you need to survive, so eating only in the morning, one meal a day, that sort of thing. Um, living in a simple dwelling, you can renounce your home and go and live in under a tree in the forest or in a, in a small hut in the forest, that sort of thing. You can renounce medicines, uh, just using simple medicines anyway. Yeah, the medicines, maybe that's not such a, a big deal. You wouldn't want to renounce life-saving medicines, but you renounce painkillers and that sort of thing, I think. That's a, that's a standard form of renunciation, the four requisites. And you could extend that to renouncing any requisites that are not used for the purpose of spiritual life.
What sort of explanation can Buddhism give to a near-death experience? Well, in terms of why they may be possible, um, the mind isn't a product of the body, or to say it more accurately, mental states, moments of consciousness do not require physical entities. Physical entities don't actually exist, so the physical is not the cause of the mental, not the only cause of the mental. Physical and mental uh, entity, well, states, physical and mental, let's say entities for lack of a better word, physical and mental entities uh, have a complex relationship. And there are many mental entities, but let's say moments of consciousness that can arise without physical interaction, because it's not even fair to say without being caused by the physical, because that's not ever accurate anyway. The physical doesn't somehow magically ca cause the mental. They're just they just have a a, a relationship, a complex relationship. Um, there, William James was a famous Western philosopher who described the brain, the brain as a filter for the mind, not as the cause of the mind, because he was. You read about William James; he did he did um, studies on people with very strange states of consciousness and. It couldn't ever be explained. The, the the observations couldn't ever be explained by the brain causes the mind. So it was what was clearly more accurate was that the brain was acting as a filter, and that's I think in line with what Buddhists would say. So when the brain shuts down, uh, you're you're quite likely to experience um, states of consciousness that aren't affected or filtered by the physical by by the brain let's say as for the content i mean i guess that kind of um describes why why near-death experiences are so radical because they are unfettered by the regular the orderly uh, filtering of the brain the brain filters uh, experience through the six senses like it's like being in a jail cell so you're in a jail cell your experiences are very orderly everything is very similar and very bleak in some ways very limited like socrates and the the cave right if you know the the plato's uh, description of uh, living in a cave and only seeing images on the wall without actually seeing the actual people making the images, that kind of thing. So a near-death experience is free from that. It's like the liberty from the cave, and you have experiences that are wild and and beyond any, you know, clear beyond any experience you've had before with a great such a great clarity and often intensity. Uh, that, that makes it hard to navigate without mindfulness and so there can be a lot of imagination and fantasizing like just like a dream almost you know like in the way that a dream is often um, dissociated from brain activity so during a dream there may be very strange experiences and a near-death experience would be similar could be similar
people not just near-death experiences people have out-of-body experiences people who have strokes where the brain well that's i guess you could call it a near-death experience but also um in people who are under under general anesthesia often describe very strange experiences often describe leaving their bodies In life, we set goals to accomplish. The hindrance of liking seems like goals, and I am confused between liking and goals. Can you help me understand the difference? Well, goals are conceptual. Um, you, you, you conceive of a... Um, an idea... Like, let's say, my goal to be able to uh, be able to 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 bench press a uh, hundred pounds or two. I don't know how much people bench press two hundred pounds, three hundred pounds. So, what I'm talking about is a. Now that's not so much conceptual. That's even a, an experience. My goal is to have this experience of bench pressing so many pounds. So that's a. It's conceptual in the sense that you conceive of that, you imagine that state in your mind. Now, simply imagining such a state is 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 inconsequential. It's just a, a thought, a moment. But when you call it a goal, there is a intent. And some goals are set by desire, liking. Right? So you like or in this case, we would call it wanting, though it's really the same mind state. You what, See, what happens is you like that thought. You think of yourself bench-pressing it, and you probably think of the, um, the, the feeling of self-worth, and you, would, you, you think to yourself, boy, I would feel good about myself then, and you like that feeling. So there is, it's, wanting is technically just liking. You like the thing that you're thinking about getting. We call that wanting. It's actually liking. Um, other goals are based on an intent that is based on wisdom. For example, realizing that you have anger or or liking, that you have addictions, and uh, inclining and having cultivating the intent to reach a goal where you no longer have those states. So. Goals are of different sorts, and even good, even positive goals, even beneficial goals, can be tainted by your desire to attain them. And if you're cultivating the desire to attain a goal, you're not being mindful. You're not cultivating wholesomeness. Your mind is not clear. So it's not actually beneficial to obsess about even positive goals, of course, because it's counterproductive. Good question. Those are. But there is a difference. When meditating intensely in periods, I experience that people talking to me ask if I understand their questions or become annoyed because I don't react to them. What can I do? Yeah, sometimes... Um... We put too much emphasis on this word intensely. Intensely isn't generally a good thing. There's nothing beneficial about intensity. Uh, though I suppose it's just 
can be used as a description for intensively, like if you're practicing mindfulness intensively, though I would still say it's most likely that people are reacting to your um, disconnect from reality. It's not a certainty that you're actually cultivating mindfulness. You may just be cultivating strong concentration. And that's what people are reacting to. Because with mindfulness, through through practice, you should be um, quite interactive with people. There shouldn't be a sense of of um, being slighted that people feel when around you because of your lack of interaction. Mindfulness should allow you to interact naturally. I mean, but it takes practice to get there. In the beginning, yeah, you're going to be uh, challenged to not get dissociated and uh, disconnected from the people around you. You will change, and so to some extent, there's going to be discomfort when people see you different. But if people, feel, yeah, and 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 because you don't react in the way you did before, and that that to that extent, there's not much you can do about it except find new friends, <laughs> because, um, well, or maybe that's not quite fair, but be gentle and be patient and try to stick to yourself. And be prepared for your relationships with others to change as you're not able to meet their expectations. But at the same time, uh, be conscious of the fact that you may be too intense, and you may not. You may be able to adjust the intensity of your mind states to be more flexible. I probably owe more in taxes than what I have paid in the past, mostly due to negligence or ignorance, not intentional tax fraud. Would it be dredging up the past to redo them to pay what I owe? I don't know. You would probably want, I mean, this isn't really a question for me because you would probably want to look at what the law says and determine for yourself whether following the law is important to you. I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't be important, but uh, it is always a question of whether... There are people who refuse to pay taxes because the taxes go to the military and that sort of thing. And in some places, they've gotten away with it conscientious objectors in other places they've gone to jail i think thoreau henry david thoreau went to jail for not paying taxes and he said he wrote a book on it he said uh he said it was my duty not to pay taxes and he just he explains that which it's an interesting read after a longer period of vipassana meditation every day i am now not so constant anymore and I am worried about it, and see how uncontrollable it is to be constant. Any advice to get back on track? Well, life isn't constant. That's a realization that's important in Vipassana. Um, but I guess you mean more about practicing every day. It still kind of applies. You can't expect yourself to be constant. Uh, it, means, it doesn't mean you should let yourself off the hook, but you can't dwell on how you weren't practicing yesterday or even earlier today. Even you asking this question you know, makes it time to be mindful. So when you're aware enough to ask that question, 
you're aware enough to be mindful now, right here, right now. Cultivate mindfulness. I don't know if you're practicing in our tradition. We don't usually call what we do vipassana, though sometimes we do. We call it satipatthana vipassana. And I only bring that up. I'm, I'm don't mean to nitpick, but I'm saying that it sounds like you. There's a potential for you practicing a different tradition. So, if you're interested in what we do, you might consider taking up the practice according to our booklet and doing our at-home course and eventually one of our intensive courses. Noticing my thoughts constantly make me tired. Is it okay if I allow all of my thoughts to flow through my mind instead of noticing them? Well, you would know tired and tired. Uh, it can make you tired because of your um, because of the qualities in your mind of trying to control. And it can also make you tired because of laziness, because of the mind's uh, lack of strength. And just like exercise can make you tired, mindfulness practice can make you tired in the beginning as you exercise the mind, and that's a good thing. But you should also just note tired. Um, and if there's many thoughts, you can, you should, rather than trying to catch them, you should note distracted, distracted. But honestly, what's making you tired shouldn't be your thoughts. It would be the emotions, likes and dislikes that are really causing you stress. And you should be vigilant about noting those as well. Bhante, we've crossed the hour and asked every question in the top tier. Great. Well, thank you all for your questions. Wonderful as always. Thank you for your help, Chris, Jim, Edit, if she's here. Anybody else? And thank you all for coming out. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.